Our dear friend and brother Mitch Marcheski did a wonderful job last Sunday as he unpacked for us in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28, the new covenant that now exists between God and his people by way of the perfect, sacrificial blood of Christ shed on the cross. And now this morning, we aim to turn our focus to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews repeats several of the things he's been driving home for the past two chapters, but he also gives us some insight into the Christian concept, the concept of Christian sanctification. Now that word sanctification may be foreign to some of us, but to sanctify something simply means to set it apart for special use. And so sanctification, as it comes to the Christian life, is the action of God whereby he sets apart an individual. He declares him or her to be holy and he makes him or her to be holy. If you are a believer and follower of Christ, your sanctification is very important to God. He is not nearly as concerned with, hear this, God is not nearly as concerned with where you work or where you live or what kind of shoes you wear as he is your being and your becoming holy. You must be holy, he says in 1 Peter 1.16. You must be holy because I am holy. Our sanctification, brothers and sisters, is very important to God and therefore it should be very important to us. And our passage this morning offers us insight into this concept of Christian sanctification. And so I'd invite you to follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. If you are a device user, we use the English Standard Version and so you might be able to pull that up so that you can follow along closely. Let's read, or I'll read. (laughs) For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins... But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first 
in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what wonders and glories permeate this passage of your word. For your glory, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage of your word and to behold and to treasure your son Jesus who is at the center of this word. And in this time of proclamation of your word, we ask that you would save and sanctify that you would save those among us who are walking right now on the road to destruction and that you would sanctify those among us who are in Christ and who have been made perfect by his blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews devotes a good portion of this passage to saying things he has already said. But this necessary repetition has to do with his original audience. You see, for most of us, most of us non-Jewish, 21st century American Christians, the fact of the old covenant being made obsolete by the new covenant in Christ, it doesn't need to be repeatedly explained and emphasized to us because it's fairly straightforward and easy for us to grasp. But for the first century Jewish Christians to whom this book, this letter was first written, the old covenant system was all they had known their entire lives. We might think about it this way. Here in America, we drive on the right side of the road, right? At least we're supposed to. If you're not, you need to be. <laughs> Here in America, we drive on the right side of the road. Well, imagine being told that it's time to start driving on the left side, right? For all these years, our driving on the right-hand side of the road has been meant to prepare us for the left side, the better side, and now that long-awaited time has come, and it's time for the transition, and it's time to drive on the left side. I think probably all of us would have a million questions 
And we would need to be reminded, at least until our almost, you know, first head-on collision, we would need to be reminded again and again and again and again. And, and this is why, a cheesy way of illustrating why, beginning in verses 1 through 4, the writer of Hebrews continues to explain to his Jewish Christian audience that the old covenant system... The Mosaic law, the temple sacrifices performed by the priesthood, the old covenant system had not been designed by God to last forever. It had been designed to show sinners that they are sinners who need a savior. It was designed to do that all the way up until the consequential arrival of Christ, verses 5 through 8. Consequently, when Christ appeared, hallelujah. 1,500 years of Old Covenant, and now, consequently, Christ has arrived. And now, in these verses, in verses 5 through 8, in this segment of this passage, the writer of Hebrews, he's quoting from Psalm 40, which was originally written by King David a 1,000 years before Christ's arrival. And yet, although these words had been penned a 1,000 years prior The writer of Hebrews attributes these words to being the words of Christ as spoken to his heavenly father. It's a mysterious double fulfillment of this passage from Psalm 40 where Jesus apparently says to his father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, a physical human body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And so I have come to do your will, O God, just as it is written of me. By quoting these words from Psalm 40, the writer of Hebrews is wanting his Jewish Christian audience and us to see that even while the old covenant was in full effect a thousand years before the coming of Jesus, even while it was in full effect, God was telling the people of Israel that a physical, bodily Savior would come to accomplish everything that the Old Covenant could not accomplish according to God's redemptive will. And behold then, Verses 9 through 14. This is exactly what Jesus, our Messiah, has accomplished for those who are in him under his blood. Through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, 9 through 14. Look with me. Christ has done away with the first covenant in order to establish the second or the new covenant in his blood. He has taken away the sins of all God's people forever. He has disarmed all his enemies. Satan is included. The the slithering serpent from the Garden of Eden is included. But so are all of the devil's followers defeated and awaiting the countdown till their final judgment. And, and through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross... He has sanctified God's people once and for all. Each one of those things has been accomplished 
by and through the sacrificial death of the resurrected Christ. Now, if you believe this, and I urge you to believe this, if you believe this, if you confess your sin before God, and I urge you to do this, if you acknowledge your need to be made right with God, and I urge you to do this, if you place your hope, your trust, your confidence in the already accomplished work of Christ, you are a recipient of every last new covenant promise. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You, like me, if that's you, you, like me and all God's people, we were once alienated from God. We were once enemies with God, as we've just sung. And you, like me and all God's people, even if you're in Christ now, you were once headed for divine judgment on account of your trespasses and sins. But now, but now, you have been and you are being saved by God's grace. And this, this grace is not conditioned upon anything that you do at all. The old covenant stipulated that God's blessing was enjoyed by only those who obeyed all the law of Moses. We are not under the old covenant. We are under the new covenant where God's grace forever saves those who know that their only hope for heaven relies on someone other than themselves. Put your trust in Christ. Keep putting your trust in Christ. Now, for the remainder of our time, that was only an intro. We have about two and a half hours more. No, this is the shortest part. For the remainder of our time, with our eyes on verse 10 and verses 14 through 18, let's consider what sanctification is. What sanctification is, point number one. How sanctification works, point number two. Because remember something that we previewed at the beginning of our time. Brother or sister in Christ, look at me for just a second. God is not nearly as concerned with what you drive or where you vacation or what your hobbies are. He's not nearly as concerned about that as he is your personal holiness, your sanctification. The letter of 1 Thessalonians, it flat out just says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. You ever wonder, what is God's will for my life? Your sanctification. That's what his will is for your life. You don't have to close your eyes and throw a dart at a dartboard. Where should I move? What, should I buy this car or not? Should I give to this mission or not? His, God's will for your life is that you are sanctified. So let's lean into what sanctification is. At the beginning of our time, I kind of gave you the the Webster's definition, so to speak. 
Christian sanctification is the action of God whereby he sets an individual apart. He declares him or her to be holy. And then at the same time, he makes him or her to be holy. In verse 10, we see that for believers in Christ, there's a sense in which our sanctification has already been accomplished. And by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let me personalize this for you. If you are in Christ, every sin that you have ever, ever committed and every sin that you will ever commit Past, present, future. Your lies, your greed, your gossip, and mine, of course. I'm not apart from you. Your lust, your arrogance, your drunkenness, your impurity, your idolatry. Your turning a blind eye to the things that God desires and your willful ignorance of his worthiness and his beauty. Every sin that you have ever committed and every sin that you will ever commit has been taken away from you, washed away by the blood of Jesus forever, full stop. God has declared you through the atoning death of his son, holy, holy, forever set apart, unconditional. This doesn't have anything to do with you. This has everything to do with me and what I've done through the perfect blood of my son, whom I will cover. I'll cover anyone I desire to cover, and that is you in my son. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in his life, death, and resurrection ascended to the Father to cover your sin and to bring you near to God, you have been absolved of everything you have ever or will ever do, period. It's like, it's, it's, it's like too good. It's too good to grasp. It's, such knowledge is so high I can barely comprehend it. And you have been now set apart from the sinful world. Hear that. You have been declared holy and set apart while in this world. Look at verse 17. And let me continue to personalize this for you, believer. Man, if this isn't one of our favorite verses, the voice of God to us, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. The whole point of the sacrificial system we see earlier in this chapter is that in these sacrifices, they were constantly reminded of their sin. And here we have Yahweh God saying, I now will remember your sins no more. This means that brother or sister in Christ, gosh, if you, if you like me, believe that Jesus is 
our only hope that atonement and being reconciled before God by his life, death, and resurrection, if you believe that, God sees you right now, right where you are seated, and he says this to you. Do you not know that I have summoned you by name and that you are mine? That I have set you apart by the blood of my perfect son and I don't even remember the sins that you think I am holding over your head. How wretched of a past do you have? How hellish of a nightmare of, of things have you given your mind to and your heart to and your body to and your mouth to? If you are in Christ, don't hold over your own head what the Father is no longer even holding over your head. You're freed, forgiven, exonerated. Perfect blood was spilled for that. Don't be so arrogant to think that the perfect blood of the Lamb somehow doesn't cover you or that particular sin, no matter how hellish it might be. The Apostle Paul was in the business of murdering Christians before Jesus resurrected his heart. You done that? Even if you had, guess what? In Christ, washed. And the Father doesn't even remember it. Why do we hold over our own heads? Why do we, why do we succumb to the crushing weight of guilt when, the Father, when our Father doesn't even remember what we've done if we're in Christ? That blood has washed it away. He says to me, or he says to you, this is the Father. This is, a, this is my take on this, on this verse, verse 17. The Father says to you, brother or sister, I would start calling out names to emphasize here. He says to you, confess to me those sins that you think I'm holding over your head. And I want to hear it. I want, you to, I want you to confess them to me. We do this during our prayer of confession every single week. I want, you to, I want to hear you confess those sins to me. And now I want you to hear this. I've already dealt with them. Done. There's nothing more that must be done. There's nothing more that can be done. Verse 18, because where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You couldn't sacrifice yourself and have it make a, make a drop in the bucket if you wanted to. There isn't anything more that can be done. Everything that can be done has been done. In three words, it is finished, spoken by the perfect lamb who dripped to the dregs after taking upon his own body our every transgression. By a single offering, Christ has perfected you. He has already, in a sense, perfected you, first, first half of 14. But there's more to that verse we'll consider in just a moment. Here's why, here's why it's really good news that on the one hand, Christ has already completely perfected you. Here's why it's, there are, a lot of areas that we could take this down or roads we could go down. If you were to die right now, heaven forbid, if you, uh, let me, I'm gonna personalize this. If you were to die right now, even though you've still got a ton of ticks that need to be refined, 
even though you've still got a lot of sins <laughs> that need to be put to death, even though you've still got a lot of blind spots that you're clueless to, a lot of ways that you're hurting people that you don't even know, a lot of sins that are unintentional, so to speak, even though all of those things are intact, if you were to die right now, you would immediately find your place, or you would immediately find yourself in the place where only perfect beings can go. In the paradise of the presence of the perfect one, Jesus Christ. Praise God for verse 14, because the requirement for admittance into the paradise of the presence of the perfect one, into everlasting life, there is a requirement to get in, and it is perfection. If you are left to yourself, you will not pass go, but under the blood of the lamb who has already made you perfect, you're in immediately, without a second thought. You close your eyes in death, believer, even with all of your sin, that you still have to be growing, and, and, and don't hear me, we're not to get negligent, we need to be putting our sin to death. But because there is a sense in which you are already declared perfect, guess what? You close your eyes in death, immediately you are in the presence of the perfect one, Jesus. And you're conscious. Your body isn't resurrected yet. That's coming. But you're aware. You're aware of what's going on. By Christ's single offering on the cross, he has perfected for all time hear this, past tense, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Past tense, present tense. How are we being sanctified if we're already sanctified? Well, I was hoping that you would tell me. How are we to become what we already are? I love that paradox, becoming what we already are. How are we to do that? Verses 15, 16. By God the Holy Spirit. By God the Holy Spirit, who now lives within each and every one of God's, the Father's adopted sons and daughters. Every one of God's people is indwelled with God the Holy Spirit. And he is bringing into effect what the prophet Jeremiah spoke of back in the days of the old covenant. The new covenant that God the Father has made with us through God the Son. Do you hear the Trinity in this? The new covenant that God the Father has made with us through God the Son is being blossomed in us by God the Holy Spirit who has placed his laws on our hearts and our minds. Now this is getting super confusing because half of this letter so far has been the, the, the law has, 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 has passed. What is, what is meant here by the laws of God? Are we, what's being written on our hearts? I thought that a lot of ink has been spilled so far telling us that we're freed from that. Well, the Mosaic law is not God's only law. Hear this, listen to this from Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all God's people, training us to renounce ungodliness, training us at a heart level 
to renounce things that are ungodly, to renounce worldly passions, sexual immorality, greed, thievery, deception, arrogance, training us to live self-controlled from the heart, self-controlled, upright from the heart, training us to live godly lives in the present age, which is anything but godly, while we await our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are pretty stoked about walking in good works of Christ. My translation. Let me read again for you Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. This is, old, this is new covenant language here. He's brought salvation for all God's people. And now he, in us, is training us to renounce ungodly, underhanded, deceitful ways, worldly passions. He's training us to live self-controlled not beasts of the field that are just going literally wherever our palate takes us. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age when there is no, no self-control in our world today. We're going to start standing out to be self-controlled as we await our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself, he's doing it, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The blood of Christ has made you holy and the blood of Christ is making you holy. It reminds me, I've used this illustration before, but have you ever seen Disney's cartoon, the Ro like not the Robin Hood, but just Robin Hood? <laughs> have you seen Robin Hood? So King Richard is out on the Crusades and this lion, <laughs> Prince John, is wearing King Richard's crown and he's got his royal robe on. He's, he's this little pipsqueak. And he looks like he's just dwarfed by this huge crown. It's not, it's not fitting for him. And this huge robe, it's not, it's not his. And this huge scepter, it's not his. He looks like a goofball. But now put this in the positive with me because this is how I think of my holiness, my right standing and righteousness in Christ. I am wearing, it's like I am wearing, and so are you in Christ. We are wearing the righteous crown of Christ and the righteous robe. He has put those things upon us and we need to grow up into them at the same time right? We look a little dorky. We don't look like we're totally fitting the part. Guess what? I'm not. I'm not even coming close to living the life that Christ is bringing me up into. I got the crown though and the robe and the scepter because his righteousness has been placed around me and I need to be growing up into it as well at the same time. Kind of like a bunch of Prince Johns, right? And so, dear Christian, However old you are in the faith, dear brother and sister or sister in Christ, with the Holy Spirit having written the laws of God on your hearts, Romans 13, 8 through 10, 
when you leave this place and now and until you take your last breath, owe no one anything except to love one another. Paul writes, except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Acts of love and deeds of faith, generosity with your time and your talent and your treasure, hospitality, service here in the church and to serve those outside the church, to show up and to encourage another brother or sister and to receive encouragement, to speak the truth in love to one another, to bear patiently with one another, to forgive one another. We could do a whole sermon series and maybe we will someday on the one another's, the 59 one another's of the New Testament. Therein lies the whole, what the Holy Spirit is writing and doing on, in our hearts. From the inside out, exuding a Christ-likeness that is blossoming more and more and more. And so, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I would invite you to pray as we close. Father, what wonders and glories permeate your word, every passage of your word and this one. Please help us to understand this word and to behold and to treasure your son, Jesus, who's at the center of it. By proclaiming your word today, Lord, I pray that you would save those who have not responded. Oh, Lord, that you would draw them to you. And I pray that you would sanctify those of us who have responded, that you would continue to work in us that which is pleasing and right in your sight. To the glory of Christ, to the glory of you, Father, to the glory of Holy Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.